So our, our scripture passage is John 17, 1 through 5. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's turn our faces now toward Jesus and let's pray that he'll help us this morning. Our Father, your love for us is incredibly deep. It's deeper than we will ever know. It's higher than we will ever see. It's broader and wider than we will ever be able to take in. But I pray that this morning that you would open our eyes just a little bit more. I pray that you would help us to see your glory just a little bit more clearly. And I pray that you would accomplish the designs that you set forth in John chapter 17 for our lives. Oh, Father, keep it far from us that we would hear the words of God preached and then walk away unmoved and unchanged. Rather, Father, we pray that by your word and by your Holy Spirit that you would inform our minds and ignite a fire in our hearts and shape our lives by your will and by your power. For what you will do, Father, this morning and in the coming weeks, we thank you in the mighty and majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 17 is one of the highest peaks in all of the Bible because here, Jesus prays at length to his Father in the hearing of his disciples that he might fulfill his joy in them. Here, Jesus prays for himself and reveals several things about the nature of his glory and the nature of his relationship with God the Father that are stunning and potentially life-transforming. Here, Jesus prays for his disciples and reveals things about his desires for them that are quite literally beyond imagination and are filled with glory. Here, Jesus gives us insight into the relationships between his glory and our joy, between his joy and our joy, between his holiness and our holiness, between the process of sanctification and the mission of God in the world, the mission that he very much wants to set us on and have us to be part of. He shows us here the relationship between his work in us now and his desire for us in eternity. His prayer is sometimes called the high priestly prayer because here Jesus spends quite a few verses praying for his people. Others prefer to call it the prayer of consecration because here Jesus also prays for himself and devotes himself to the things of God that were about to come about in his life in the coming days and in, in fact in the coming millennia. I think this prayer is really both things, and it's more than both things. And so I would rather just call it the prayer of Jesus and let it stand on its own, let it speak for itself without artificial labels being put over it. I would prefer that we carefully and prayerfully meditate on every line of this sacred text and allow Jesus to open up our eyes to glorious things and allow him to give us in our lives his very joy. This is what he wants for us. He wants his joy 
to be fulfilled in us. In fact, the, the very structure of this prayer argues for this fact. So let me just talk with you just for a couple minutes about how this prayer is structured. In the first five verses, Jesus begins by praying for himself, and he highlights the issue of glory. Father, glorify the Son. In the next few verses, from 6 to 19, Jesus prays for the disciples that were alive at that time, not, not just those in the upper room, but all those in that generation. And he asked the Father to keep them. He asked the Father to sanctify them. He asked the Father to send them into the world and to be part of his mission in the world. And then in verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays for his future disciples, which would include all of us in this room today who believe in him and who are following him. And he prays for us, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth, that we would be unified with the very unity that unifies the Father and the Son. Although we are from different places and different nations and speak different languages and think different thoughts about many things, Jesus prayed that we would taste the unity that belongs to him and to the Father. And then finally, in verses 24 through 26, Jesus prays for all his disciples then and now and through all eternity, and he asks his Father that we would have the privilege of beholding his glory. Jesus said, Father, I desire that my people see my glory. And then he prays that we would be enfolded in the very love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. One way that we could represent the text is like this. I'm sorry that that bottom line is so uh, small type. I feel like we're at a driver's test here. Everybody, please cover your right eye and read, read the line and tell me what you see. But I wanted to get it all in one line so that we could see the structure of the prayer. Glorify me, keep them, sanctify and send them, unify them and enfold them. And right smack dab in the middle of that prayer is verse 13. 13 out of 26, right in the middle. And in verse 13, Jesus says these words, if you'll look there with me, please. But now, Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When you read John 17 all at once, it's a little bit hard to tell where verse 13 fits. Does it go with what came before or what comes after? It seems like it might be a little bit misplaced, but actually Jesus put it exactly where he wanted it, right in the middle of this prayer. It begins with glory, it ends with glory, and in the middle Jesus said, I say all these things for their sake so that they will have my joy fulfilled in them. Beloved, please understand that through this prayer, Jesus means to escort us to the very heights of heaven so that we would possess the happiness that belongs to him and has belonged to him forever and will belong to him forever. Every aspect of this sacred text is designed to lead us to the roots of Jesus' joy that we might share in that joy forevermore. This is the stated design of John chapter 17. And so the question for us is this. Are we willing to allow Jesus to have his way in us and to take us where he wants to take us in the coming weeks? Are we willing? I wanna encourage you not to answer that question too quickly. I really think that question is an important question that in many ways confronts our flesh. One, I want you not too quickly to assume your answer is just, but think about this, search your hearts. Are you willing to allow Jesus to take you by the hand in the coming five weeks and take you to the heights of heaven, take you to where he wants to take you and give you the things that he wants to give to you? My honest answer is 
just about the same as the guy in Mark chapter nine who said, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Much of me wants to go everywhere where Jesus wants to take me, but I'll be honest with you, I have other thoughts in my mind, I have other joys in this life, I have other desires that are not necessarily bad things, but sometimes they pull my heart away a little bit more than they should, and so my prayer to Jesus now is just make me willing, let me take your hand and let me allow you to lead me wherever it is that you want me to go. Let me die to lesser joys that I might have the greater joys that you have for me. And so if your heart too is leaning toward wanting to say yes, then I think we need to face this fact that in order to go where Jesus wants to take us in the coming weeks, we're gonna have to die to ourselves. We have to lay our agendas aside and let Jesus have his way in our lives. We're gonna have to die to the desire for Jesus to speak into our lives on our terms about things that concern us so that he can bring us to where he wants to take us and speak to us about the things that concern him on his terms and on his terms alone. We will have to take up our cross and die over the next five weeks to go where Jesus wants us to go. Now, beloved, we have many concerns in this life, and I would guess that most of our concerns are legitimate concerns. We have concerns about our hearts, concerns about our families, concerns about work, concerns about school, concerns about our nation, concerns about many things in the world, and these things are not illegitimate things. In fact, in other parts of the scripture, Jesus says, don't be anxious about any of this stuff, but talk to me about everything. Now, why would Jesus want us to talk to him about everything if he thought that everything that was on our hearts is meaningless? Of course, when we do feel anxious and we talk to the Lord, sometimes he helps us to see that we have our eyes on the wrong things, but other times he just helps us to shape the way we're thinking about things we really ought to think about. And then through Peter, the Lord himself told us, listen, here's what you should do with all the cares in your life, all the cares that are in your heart, cast them upon me. And the stated reason Jesus gives for doing that is that he cares about us. This is a, a stunning thing, really that the God of heaven cares about the details of our lives. I do not want to send a message this morning that God doesn't care about the details of our lives. He tells us elsewhere to cast these things upon him. But sometimes, sometimes the Lord says, my child, my son, my daughter, I want you to take me by the hand right now, and I want you to allow me to lead you to a place that you don't know Maybe you've been around this place before, but I'm going to show you measure of it that you haven't seen before. Let me take you to the heights of heaven and show you things you have not seen. Let me give you a greater measure of my joy, a kind of joy you have not felt. And when you come and see what I have for you to see, when you receive what I have to give to you, you will see your life with new eyes. Your cares will seem different. Your concerns will seem different. They may not go away but all things will be transformed. Beloved, I believe that our journey through John 17 is just one of these times. It's a time where Jesus says, my children, take me by the hand and let me lead you to an exceedingly high place. And so, again, the question is, are we willing? And it's not a simple question to answer, really, because we're not gonna sit in this room for the next five weeks and do nothing else but contemplate John 17. At least, that's not my plan, that's for sure. We have to still go to work. We have to attend to things at home. We have to think about many other things. But I pray that over the next five weeks, central to everything, we'll hear the echo of this call in our lives from Jesus Christ himself. Come away with me, my children. Come away with me to the heights of heaven and let me show you great and glorious things. Let me give you a joy 
that is yet unknown to you. I urge you, beloved, to join me in the quest to surrender our hearts to Christ in these days and to let him have his way. And in fact, if I could just take another minute just to pray here and right now that God would help us in these things. Father, I thank you for speaking the, allowing Jesus to speak the words of John 17 so that we could hear them. He didn't have to speak out loud for your sake or for his, but he did speak out loud for our sake, and I'm so grateful that his words were spoken. I'm so grateful that his words were preserved first by the Apostle John and then by your people throughout the centuries. I'm so grateful that we have them right in front of us today, and we have the ability to meditate upon them. I am so grateful that the stated design of this prayer is to heighten our joy in Christ forever, and I pray that you would come now, Lord, and have your way in us Oh, Father, we are willing, and yet parts of us are not willing, and so I ask you to help us die to ourselves that we might live to you. And Father, for what you will do, I give you my thanks and my praise, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus had said all that the Father had given him to say in the upper room, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he prayed out loud in the hearing of his disciples. Now, in our culture, when we pray, it's normative for us to put our heads down and to close our eyes, and we have reasons why we do that. But in the Jewish culture, it was actually normal for a person to lift their face up toward God, sometimes even to lift their hands as a symbol that their attention had turned heavenward. So in one way, Jesus is just doing what was normal in the culture and just, just praying with his head up toward the Lord. But as I have prayed about his time there in the upper room and thought a lot about that particular context, I actually think he was sending a physical symbol to his disciples to say, turn your heads up now and turn them that way. He had been talking with them about many things, and most recently he had been talking with them about the Father, and now he wants to shift from talking about the Father to talking to the Father in the presence of his disciples and in their hearing. And by lifting his head up to the Father, he is saying, Beloved, turn your head that way and keep your head that way. And I think that if we'll allow Jesus to do it, he wants to do the same thing to us now. I think all of us should take the time to meditate on his physical posture, to see his head turn upward, to see his hands thrusting upward as a way of him saying to us, lift your chins up now to the Father. Look at him with me and hear the things that I have to say. May the Lord accomplish this design in our lives. With his head lifted up to his Father, he began by saying, Father, the hour has come. From the beginning of his ministry, specifically we see it in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus talked about this hour that was coming. You might remember that he said to his mother, Mary, he said, woman, why do you ask me this? My hour has yet to come. And then John, as a, a, a good disciple of Jesus and a good narrator of his story, picked this up again in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and said twice that the reason the authorities did not arrest Jesus and kill him right there on the spot is because his hour had not yet come. Now, if you were to read the Gospel of John for the very first time without knowing what was coming, without knowing the end of the story, I think your curiosity would be piqued by the middle of chapter 8 when you keep hearing about this hour. What is this hour? What, what, what is it exactly? What's going to happen then? Why is it so important? And you would know for sure that whatever it is, it's key, it's central to everything Jesus came to do and everything he came to teach. And then you would see in chapter 12, 23, and you would hear Jesus say, the hour now has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. You may remember that the Gentiles had just come to seek Jesus in the midst of the Passover celebration, and this was the signal for the Lord, that the nations had come to seek him. It was the signal that his hour had come to lay down his life for the nations. And so, again, he said, the hour has come. It's not coming. It has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then you would come to chapter 13, verse 1. And you would see that John said that Jesus said everything he did in the upper room because he knew that his hour had come. He knew that at that time he was literally only a handful of hours away from being arrested and enduring the cross. And because he knew that that time had come, then it was time for him to speak at length with those who were closest to him. And you would come to the end of the upper room discourse and you would see in almost the very last verse, chapter 16, verse 32, where Jesus says to the disciples that the hour is coming and behold, it's already here. It's right now. When all of you are going to scatter from me, you're going to leave me alone. But I want you to know the Father will never, ever leave me alone. Given the long-standing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, and given there are several attempts to arrest him and even to kill him, given the departure of Judas and the things that Jesus said to him and about him as he left, and given the several statements that Jesus made in the upper room about going to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit to the disciples, if you were reading the Gospel of John for the first time, by this point you might surmise that his hour had to do with suffering and perhaps even death. And if you were a particularly astute reader, you would probably begin to get the hint that somehow, someway, he was going to overcome death. Somehow, someway, he was going to physically see his disciples again, even if for a brief time. Somehow, someway, Jesus would be reunited with his Father. And if you surmise these things, you would be absolutely right, because the hour of Jesus refers to that relatively brief time during which he was arrested and tried and convicted and mocked and flogged, tortured, crucified, buried in a grave, raised from the dead, reunited with his disciples for a brief time, and then reunited forever with his Father, where he rules and reigns even now as the high priest and king of heaven and earth, knowing that his hour was now upon him. In fact, it might have been within an hour now, by the time he prayed this prayer, that he was to be arrested Jesus first prayed for himself, and he asked the Father for something very simple, for something very profound, and in the Jewish mind, something that was probably more than potentially scandalous. Jesus said, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Can you imagine looking to God and saying, glorify me? This is what I want from you, Father. Please, this morning, glorify me. You will search the scripture in vain to find another time in which a true man or woman of God prayed a prayer like this. Indeed, no one would ever pray a prayer like this who really loved the Lord because the Lord had been so clear with his people that whereas he bountifully shared from his mercy with all who belonged to him, he would never share his glory with another. Twice the Lord said through Isaiah, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And again, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And since the Father had been so clear, how in the world could Jesus pray for such a thing? Well, 
Since the father neither denied his request, nor rebuked him for asking, nor took his life as he did when he took Herod's life for not giving glory to God, but allowing instead people to think that he was divine, since the Lord neither rejected nor killed Jesus, we are left to conclude that Jesus asked to be glorified by the father because somehow the glory of the father is proper to his nature. We are left to conclude that Jesus rightly prayed to be glorified because he himself is God. If you have a friend in your life who insists that Jesus never claimed to be God, take them to John 17, 1 through 5 and show them that nobody who is less than God could pray a prayer like this in the presence of God and live. As John taught us at the very beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the reason the Word was with God is because the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Nobody else can say that. Because this is so, because this is his nature, it was right for him to ask the Father to glorify him now that his long-awaited hour had come. What else should he pray, really? But if it was, in fact, proper for Jesus to ask for such a thing, what did he mean by it? In other words, if you put yourself in Jesus' shoes, let's say you assume that the Father's gonna say yes to this prayer, what did Jesus think was gonna happen? How exactly would the Father glorify the Son? Let me answer by leading us through verses two through three. The primary reason that Jesus gives us for asking the Father to glorify him is that the Father had already granted him authority over all flesh, which is to say, over all nations and over every single person that has lived or ever will live. Beloved, please do not domesticate Jesus and allow yourselves to think small thoughts of him. He is very great. Jesus Christ has authority over the Americas. Jesus Christ has authority over Western Europe and over Eastern Europe. Jesus Christ has authority over Russia and all the territories that it controls. Jesus has authority over China and India and all the, the, the nations of the Far East. Jesus has authority over Israel and Palestine and all the countries of the Middle East. Jesus has authority over Saharan Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. He has authority over Australia and New Zealand and every island on this earth. Jesus Christ even has authority in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. Jesus has authority, absolute authority over all land and over every ocean. He has ultimate authority over all the nations and over every single person that has lived or is living or will ever live. The Father has granted the Son authority over all flesh, and his power is very great. But even though his power is so great and so vast, I want you to notice that Jesus quickly turns our attention to the functional purpose of his authority, and he affirms that the Father gave him this authority so that he might give eternal life to everyone whom the Father had already given to him. In other words, while the broad authority of Jesus over the nations and over particular individuals will exist forever, the focal point of his authority is to save some people 
from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth. And it's not as though his, question, his, his mission was in question or is in question or will ever be in question because the Father had already given to Jesus every specific person to whom Jesus would give eternal life. I hope you see this. The Father sent the Son on a certain mission to give eternal life to certain people for the glory of of his name. The mission of the Son on the earth is guaranteed by the will of the Father and by the irreversible and irresistible authority that the Father has given to the Son to grant eternal life to those who he has been given. This is why Jesus was not afraid to ask the Father to glorify him, which is to say to lift him up and to exalt him in the sight of all nations. This was exactly the right thing for Jesus to pray because this is exactly in accordance with his being and with his authority and with his function on the earth. But the ironic thing here is that before being lifted up visibly in glory before all the nations, Jesus would have to first be lifted up on a cross of suffering. Jesus would have to first be willing to endure unbelievable pain. He would have to be willing and and gladly willing to give his body to be broken and to give his blood to be spilled. Jesus would have to be willing to let his body be buried in a cave that he actually shaped with his own hands by the will of the Father on the dawn of creation. Beloved, those of us who are familiar with the story of Jesus probably have lost the sense of shock and overwhelm and disorientation that should Uh, rise up in our souls at a moment like this when we realize that the, the first part of the exaltation of the glory of Jesus has to happen through suffering and death. We don't think about our heroes that way. We don't like heroes who are defeated. We don't like to tell stories about people who lost. We like to tell stories about people who triumph. Yes, they might come to the precipice of difficulty and defeat, but ultimately they triumph. And here we have a a God, a, a Savior, a King, who will first be glorified through death on a cross. And I think this is really, really offensive to our souls. It's something that we have to think through. John Calvin did a great job of helping to summarize here the irony of the cross, the glory that is in the cross So let me just read for you what he said. Calvin wrote, If it be objected that never was there anything less glorious than the death of Christ, which was then at hand, I reply that in that death we behold a magnificent triumph, not primarily a magnificent defeat, which is concealed from wicked men and women. For there we perceive that atonement has been made for sins, the world has been reconciled to God, the curse has been blotted out, and Satan has been vanquished. Satan has been conquered. Satan has been defeated. In fact, Satan has been destroyed. So what might look like a temporary, uh, an absolute defeat turns out to be a necessary step on the way to absolute victory. Jesus first had to be lifted up through the cross of suffering that he might be lifted up in glory in the sight of all the nations of the world. It was necessary for Christ to atone for the sins of all he would save. And so first he had to be a suffering savior before he was a triumphant king and high priest forever and ever. It is as Jesus said to Nicodemus so many years earlier. He told Nicodemus, 
Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that people from Israel could be healed of their suffering, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so he must be exalted, so he must be glorified that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Beloved, the cross seems so inglorious, but it is actually the beginning of the display of the glory of Jesus in the earth. Think about it this way. As high and mighty as Jesus is, how could he be so humble as to gladly submit to death on a cross? It is the display of the infinite humility of Jesus, the compassion, the mercy, the grace of Jesus that is at heart at the heart of the display of his glory on the cross. And this, I think, he had in mind when he said, Father, glorify me. Father, let my humility, let my willing obedience to you be shown to every person and to all nations in the earth. Now, to make clear what the primary aim of his glorification was, at least in as much as it relates to the people he came to save, Jesus said this in verse three, if you look there. Jesus says, this is eternal life. I came to give them eternal life, so let me tell you what I mean by that. Eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When we hear the words eternal life, we usually think of life that never comes to an end. We think of life that goes upon day by day and month by month, year by year, millennia by millennia, and never dies. And there is a sense, of course, in which that's exactly what's meant by eternal life. It's life everlasting. But I think that closer to the heart of eternal life is the relational knowledge of God the Father, the only true God, and it is the relational knowledge of Jesus Christ whom the Father sent into the world with the authority to save everyone the Father had already given to him. The aim of Jesus' saving work, beloved, is not just to rescue people from judgment, but to reconcile them to God. The aim of Jesus Christ in every person's life in this room right now is to introduce you to a God that will become not only your forgiver, but your Father. The aim of Jesus is that you would have an intimate relationship with Him, mind to mind, heart to heart, soul to soul, life to life, and that this relationship would last forever and ever. This is what Jesus meant when He said the words eternal life. And this is what he had in mind when he prayed, Father, please glorify the Son that the Son might glorify you. Do you see that? The the request of Jesus to be glorified is not the end goal here. The end goal is that Christ might glorify the Father. And the way he would glorify the Father is by giving eternal life, the relational knowledge of God to everyone whom the Father had already given to him. So, Really, in essence, Jesus is saying, Father, exalt me so that I can exalt you. Father, lift me up so that I might lift you up. Father, glorify me so that I might glorify you forever by giving eternal life to everyone whom you have given me. I think this is what's at the heart of Jesus' prayer. The cross, reconciliation with God, and his ultimate glorification in heaven. Now, Jesus does go on in verse 4 to offer a second reason why the Father should glorify him, if you'll look there. Specifically, he prays, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So while Jesus just devoted himself to glorifying the Father in the future, 
Here he now affirms that he had already glorified the Father by accomplishing his works. We have seen repeatedly in John that Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. None of his works were his works. All of his works were the Father's works. Jesus only spoke what he heard the Father saying. None of his words were his words alone, somehow independent of the Father, but all of his words flowed from his loving relationship with the Father. Everything the Father led him to do, he did. Everything Jesus, the Father led Jesus to say, he said. And in this way, he glorified the Father. In this way, he exalted the Father. In this way, he said that the Father's wisdom, the Father's goodness, the Father's kindness, the Father's will, the Father's power, the Father's words are paramount in my life. My life is about living it in light of him and what he has to say and what he's doing in the world. This is the, the center, the front, the back. The top, the bottom of my life, this is what my life is about. And in doing that, beloved, he brought glory to the Father. And I think the clear implication of his work, words is that even as he had already glorified the Father this way, so now he would glorify the Father all the way to death on a cross. He would not fail to be obedient to the Father now that the hour had come. In fact, he is confidently saying, past tense, I have already accomplished all the work you sent me to do. This, in my ears, causes me to think again about his words in chapter 16, verse 33, where he confidently said to the disciples, listen, have courage, disciples. Why? Because I have overcome the world. It's already done. Before the cross, Jesus Christ proclaimed this by faith. And now he says again, Father, I've already accomplished all the work that you gave me to do before he actually endured the cross. In chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus looked to his father just before he breathed his last and said, Father, it's finished. But now, before the fact, he's essentially saying the same thing. I have already completed this work. And so Jesus was not afraid to ask again of the father. Will you look at verse five with me? Again, he asks of the father. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before, with you before the world existed. Please see the pattern here. Verse 1, glorify me that I might glorify you. Verses 4 and 5, Father, I have glorified you, so now please glorify me. Glorify me, Father, that I might glorify you. I have already glorified you, so please now glorify me. This is the heart of Jesus' prayer. And to help us see the, the depth of what Jesus is really saying, I've got to point out a little bit of an issue with the ESV here. I love the ESV. It's a great translation. I use it not only for preaching and teaching, but for my devotional life. But every translation has a little flaw here and there. And in my view, this is one place where the ESV gets it slightly wrong. The NASB renders this better. Um, so the ESV reads here, um, glorify me in your presence. But the NASB and the New King James both render this, glorify me together with yourself. And I think that's closer to what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, Father, in the midst of your presence, you're there, I'm here, please glorify me. Jesus is actually saying, Father, I am one with you, so glorify me together with yourself. Glorify me in the way you would yourself. Glorify me with the glory that is proper to you. Glorify me with the glory that belongs to God alone. Glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world even existed. Before there was anything else in all creation. Before there was what could be called a heaven and an earth. 
Oh, Father, return me to that place of glory. I will endure the cross, so then, Father, exalt me to the very highest place with you. And I want to ask you again, beloved, who can pray a prayer like this and live? Who can pray a prayer like this and be pleasing in the sight of God? Can you imagine right now bowing your head and saying out loud for everyone here to hear, glorify me, God, and glorify me with your very glory? The reason Jesus could pray this without being a blasphemer is because he is God and the Father was pleased to hear his prayer. Indeed, the glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. Beloved, behold your Savior. This is the nature of his heart. This is the nature of his glory. This is the height of heaven. And as we will see in the coming weeks, the center of the glory of God really is the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father. The glory that they share is not just some external thing, but if I could summarize it in one word, the heart of the glory that the Father and the Son share is love. And I hope to show you that as carefully as I can in the coming weeks, but for now, I pray that we'll just simply see it. Jesus is saying, Father, return me to the place where I was from forever and I will be forever so that we can delight in and love one another forever and ever and ever. Amen. Beloved, this is an exceedingly high mountain that we just climbed with Christ. This is the center of the center of the Holy of Holies. And I'm talking about the Holy of Holies that is in heaven where God actually dwells, not the pattern that was here for a brief time on the earth. I'm saying that if you could actually go into the very presence of God, the center of the center of everything is the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. This is the heart of glory. This is actually the fountain of the joy that Jesus wants to give to us. If you'll think about joy, think about happiness just for a second, you'll quickly see that it's a fruit of other things. Happiness comes because of something outside of itself. Jesus told us in verse 13, what I wanna do is I wanna give all who believe in me the fullness of my joy. And here's how he's doing that. He's taking us by the hands and escorting us to the center of the center of the fountain of that joy. The the very fountain of Jesus' joy is the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father, and how I pray that the Lord will give us eyes to see something of that today. How I pray that God will give us ears to hear, that want to hear, that want to understand today. How I pray that God will give us passion for the things that he's passionate about. How I pray that God would shape our will so that we'll go with him and so that he can do his will in our lives. Please remember again the words of verse 13, if you look there with me again. Jesus said, but now, Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And as much as his prayer relates to us, the aim of it is to escort us into the fullness of his joy. Not just any joy, but the very joy of Jesus Christ. And not just in a small measure, but in fullness. This is his desire for us, beloved. This is his design for us. This is the stated purpose of every word he speaks in this prayer. And I think that the way we're actually gonna gain this joy in daily life is by understanding the things Jesus is saying 
but then also entering into what he's saying and embracing the things that he reveals to us. Let me just help you understand what I mean by using today as an example. This morning, I think that Jesus' desire is to help us see and understand some things about the nature of his glory and the nature of his relationship with God the Father. True sight and true insight about these things are absolutely crucial to our lives with Christ because the Bible says that the way we transform from one degree of glory to another, the way that we grow up in Christ is by the renewing of the mind. This is where it all begins. We have to understand new things so that we can live in new ways. We have to let go of the thoughts of the world and the thoughts of the flesh so that we can think God's thoughts after him. And as we learn to think as God would have us think, then we learn to live as God would have us live. But understanding the things of God is not an end in itself. Understanding the things of God is is always designed to lead us into more profound fellowship with God himself. Remember, this is eternal life, that we may know God the Father, know him, not just know about him, but that we would know God the Father, the only true God, that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ day by day, the one whom the Father has sent. This is eternal life. And beloved, Jesus is bound and determined to use the glory that the Father has given to him, the the authority, I mean, that the Father has given to him to accomplish this in our lives. He will reveal to us his glory and give to us his joy. He will do this. The question is, will we follow him? The question is, will we surrender to him? And I pray that our answers will be yes. Some of you may have come to church this morning looking for more practical counsel, and maybe some of you really feel a desperate need for that. And as I said earlier, I don't demean that at all, and that is no sin at all. Of course, it's possible that you're way too centered on yourself, and you're always thinking about yourself, and it's possible that there's some sin in that, but generally speaking, there ain't nothing wrong with coming to God and saying, Lord, I need help here. I need help thinking through things. I need help figuring some stuff out. But this morning, I think Jesus wants to take us by the hand and lead us to an excessively high place. And so I pray, beloved, that in the coming days you'll do that, that you'll turn your eyes to him, that you'll gaze upon his glory and let him give you new eyes to see. Maybe you are struggling with serious things at work or at school. I don't at all demean that, but I wanna urge you for now to just gaze upon the glory of the Father and of the Son and let him have his way in you. Perhaps you're struggling with things at home. Maybe there are financial things, practical things, relational things, whatever. And maybe those things are heavy on your heart and you don't know what to do. I have a lot of compassion for that, but for now, I wanna urge you to stare at the glory of the Father and of the Son. Let Jesus' own lifting of his head cause your head to be lifted and gaze upon what he's trying to show us here. Perhaps you're having problems inside your own heart, struggles with sin, struggles with depression, struggles with hopelessness, struggles with whatever. Those things are real to you and they're heavy to you. I understand that. God cares about that. But for now, he says, let me lift your chin up to the Father. Let me turn your attention that way so that you can see something of what I see and come back into your world with new eyes. Oh, beloved, let's trust Jesus. Let's allow him to take us by the hand and escort us to an exceedingly high place that we can see his glory 
and we can have his joy. Let me take just a couple minutes now again to pray that God will help us with this and then we will rise to sing to our Savior. Lord Jesus, I am in awe of you and I'm so grateful that you prayed these things for us. Lord, I think probably it's true for most of us here that our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. And so I pray for your help. I pray for the help of the Father. I pray for the help of the Son. I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit that you would cause us to care about these things, that you would cause us to meditate upon John 17, 1 through 5 after we leave off from church today. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of your glory. I pray that you would help us to discern that we're looking there at the center of the center of your joy. And I pray, Father, that as you give us eyes to see that you would begin the process of fulfilling the joy of Jesus Christ inside of us. Oh, Lord, please keep it far from us that we would just work through John 17 and not be changed by it. But instead, Father, please, I pray, by your compassion and by your authority, accomplish the aims for which this prayer was prayed and for which it has been preserved for these 2,000 years. By faith, Father, we thank you for what you will do in us. We thank you for what you will do through us. We thank you that you will exalt your son, that he will exalt you, and that in the process we will get your joy. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' mighty and majestic name we pray, amen.